Um, yeah, it's gone. All right, Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law and blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I, I thank you that I, I get to share this, this message that I'm here this morning. We are, are grateful that you are the one who's sovereign over your word and sovereign over us. We pray that just as you promised, your word would not return void, but it would change us, it would confront us and convict us and grow us, Lord. We pray that you would mature us and equip us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Am I causing some feedback? I will try to move. Any better? How about now? Is it him? Is it your, is it your stack back there? All right, cool. Should I, should I just project as best I can? There you go. Or get a different mic? Different mic? No? All right. Cool. So we are in Joshua chapter 8. Uh, we are in what I would view as an oft-skipped passage. It's one of those ones where you're on the back end of some action. Joshua chapter 6, we had the, the battle and the victory at Jericho. And 7 and 8, you had the the defeat and the victory at Ai, and it was very dramatic. And then you come to this little, like, six-verse section that a lot of us on our reading plan will just, like, skim through and get, get by, because there's, there's no action. Just to get to the Gibeonites and the deception and the intrigue. But in this often skipped passage, there's, there's a lot there. If we take the time to actually dig into it and, and excavate what, what God is doing there. We're literally on that, but that's all right. Uh, first, I want us to, to see how everyone is there. Uh, everyone is mentioned. We've got all of the civil leaders, all of the religious leaders, the elders, the women, children, the native-born, and the immigrant. Nobody is excluded in this. Everyone is here to participate. And one of the things we're going to see in this little six-verse passage is how even this points us to Christ. I brought a cartoon with me because some days I'm 12 years old and I need cartoons. Uh, but this is a, a quote from one of the fathers of the Reformation. Happy late, happy late Reformation Day, by the way. Uh, this is what we should in short seek in the whole of Scripture. Truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets... 
he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to him. This is uh, John Calvin, one of the uh, contemporaries of Martin Luther. And uh, I wholeheartedly agree with him that the Old Testament and the scriptures point us to Christ. So we're going to examine some of that here. First of all, why, why these mountains? Why this place? We're, we're the Israelite nation. They fought at Jericho. They fought at Ai. And they're taking a pause in the narrative here to renew the covenant with God at these two mountains. Well, if you look at the mountains in the, the back of your Bible, some of you got maps, it'll show you that they're right there in the middle of Israel. These two mountains are right next to each other. They face each other. They create a little valley in between them. And in the middle of Israel, well, God, who establishes the boundaries of Israel before Moses or Joshua start moving that direction, and God, who makes the mountains, made this just this way and did it on purpose. Now, when I try to figure out why would God use mountains, I'm looking at God has told his people and orchestrated that monuments and memorials are going to be made throughout this whole occupation movement into Israel. They've been setting up piles of stones. Some of those piles of stones have bodies underneath them, depending on where you're at. And those would be monuments to remind the people who God is, what God's done. And this monument here is the only one that God makes. It's these mountains. And he has them to put, put altars on top of the monuments he's already established as a memorial and to remind them. These ones have very specific symbology attached to them. And when I try to understand the symbology of this, uh, I, I end up referring to my own experience. And I need you to bear with me because a lot of people will try and preach their own experience as though it was the word of God, and I'm not going to do that this morning. But this, is, uh, this reminds me of what the military did for me. Uh, I, joined, I joined the Army back in 2007 and did my basic training in Missouri. Then I went to uh, Arizona for my individual training. And then I got my orders. And I was like, this is where you're going to go. It's your first like, real post. You get to be like a real soldier now. And I saw my orders, and some of the sergeants around me saw my orders. And they're like, oh, Fort Lewis, Washington. That is a great place to go. And they're talking it up. Like, it's a beautiful area. You're so close to Seattle. There's tons to do. The post itself is great. I'm, I'm jazzed. Right? And then I, I fly out there. I fly in on one of the just most beautiful days ever. Clear skies over Seattle, and it's just sun shining off the water and the Puget Sound. Wonderful. I land. They, they bust me down to Fort Lewis. I get off the bus and go straight into an orientation because there's nothing the military does better than orient its soldiers as soon as you get somewhere. So I get off the bus. I go into orientation, and this, this NCO, the sergeant, is, is giving me the brief. And he's letting me and the several other soldiers that are with me know uh, all about Fort Lewis, what's there, what to expect, here's the rules, here's what to do next. And in doing this, in the middle of it, first of all, he's bored because he's given this speech countless times. And he, he's giving all of this in just a flat delivery. When he does this, he points our attention out the window to Mount Rainier. And as you can see from the picture, Mount Rainier is that giant thing in the far distance past Seattle. And he says, that is Mount Rainier. Those things down at its feet are not foothills. Those are just regular mountains. And then he says that Mount Rainier is an active volcano. Mount Rainier is overdue to erupt. When and if Mount Rainier erupts, you will have about enough time to call your family, tell them you love them, and maybe goodbye. <laughs> Moving on. And he moved on. I did not. I... 
for the rest of the 10 years I lived up there. I would drive up and down the interstate because you can see Mount Rainier from Olympia all the way to Seattle. Everywhere you go, you see this giant thing in the distance, and it's beautiful. It's breathtaking, and you're like, God, you're awesome, right? Creation, magnificent. But then you remember, oh, also, it's death in a box. <laughs> it's, it's a time bomb, and we've lost the clock, and it's just sitting there staring at us. So everywhere I go, I look up, and there's this symbol of death in the distance. And then I look back at this passage, and I look at these mountains, and, and they're laying the blessing and the curse on these mountains in the middle of the country. Why? So that wherever you go, you can look up on the horizon and see, oh, there it is, the reminder of the blessing for obedience to God's law and the curse for disobedience to God's law. And it makes total sense. It's a, it's a monument that uh, God established for them. Um, so these are, are pretty good reflections of what they're meant to symbolize. Mount Gerizim is the mountain where the blessing is on it. Mount Gerizim is oftentimes very lush and very green. And it's one of those mountains you look at and you're like, that's what I want. I also want to be lush and green. And you look across from it, and then there's Mount Ebal, which is rocky and thorny. And you're like, that is not what I want. I don't want any of that in my life. I'm going to pick this one over here where you're supposed to. So they're, they're perfect reflections of what they're supposed to symbolize. And they've got this space down between them, this valley that's created. And it's an area known as Shechem. And I don't know how many of you remember, we talked about Shechem a little bit coming into this, this series. And uh, if we kind of look backwards through time at this valley, at Shechem, we see a couple of things happen. We see first the sons of Jacob go to avenge the violation of their sister by wiping out the Shechemites. They, uh, in the proper sons of Jacob fashion, deceived these people conned them into circumcising themselves and in the midst of their recovery process came in and wiped them out. If you go backwards in time before that, you see Jacob dug a well here, a very famous well. So famous, in fact, that it's the same well that Jesus sits at in Samaria and talks to a woman about her adulterous lifestyle. This is, uh, also makes sense when you look at the, the terrain there, why she, in shifting from, like, hey, let's not talk about all my sin, let's talk about religious controversy she can literally point over to Mount Gerizim to talk about their temple because that's where the Samaritans placed their temple. So it makes a little more sense why she would jump from, hey, I don't want to talk about how uncomfortable I am right now. Let's talk about something about Jews and Samaritans and how much we hate each other. Look, right there. So if we go back, backwards in time a little bit further, we then see Abram. And you go to Genesis 12. Abram has come to this area, and this is the spot of his first altar. To God. So in Genesis 12, verse 6, Abram passed through the land to, to the place at Shechem, to the oak, or Terebinth, at uh, Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is where God has promised people. He's promised a nation to come from Abram. So at this tree, he makes an altar to honor, to honor God and to remember that, that promise right there. And then what we see in, back in Joshua 8, all of the people of Israel, all of these people that came from Abram are now at that spot in Shechem, in this valley between these two mountains, right where God promised they would be. And it's a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. In that, in that valley. 
Another really interesting thing that happens here is what God did in putting two mountains right next to each other and creating a valley. He established a natural amphitheater. What's going to happen, what we, what we read here as they're fulfilling Deuteronomy 27. We'll, go, we'll get to that in a minute. The people on the mountain are, are giving a, a call and response. They're calling out, cursed be the man who dishonors mother and father. And the people in the valley respond with amen. And the cynical reader, like myself, looks at this and goes, well, how is the guy on the mountain and the person in the valley talking to each other? That doesn't make any sense. But they can because of the way God formed these mountains. They tested this several times. It's wonderful. The people on both mountains can talk down to people in the valley and they can hear each other because of the way the land is formed. So when we look at this, these mountains, blessings for obedience to to God's law, curses for disobedience to God's law, you have to ask yourself, does that mean that this relationship between God and his people is a transactional relationship? Is this a tit-for-tat relationship between the two elements? And on the surface, it very much looks that way. If you obey God, God blesses you. If you disobey God, God curses you. That's the way it sounds, but if you dig deeper, you realize that no, this is not a transactional relationship and that God does not operate in transactional relationships, but why? (coughs) Excuse me. This is not a transactional relationship because these are a redeemed people. The Israelites have been rescued out of Egypt. God reached in with a mighty hand and saved them from oppression and from slavery and brought them across the Red Sea. God initiated this relationship. He initiated redemption. He is the great initiator of all redemption. And these are a redeemed people just holding up their end of the relationship. So they're in covenant with God, and covenant is an intimate contractual relationship, like a marriage between two parties. For more illustration on how God views this as a marriage, just go read the book of Hosea on your spare time. Just don't read it to your kids. That would be too interesting. So they are in covenant with God. And God has initiated this. Now they are responding in kind. They are not, they are not initiating. It's not a, if they do this, God does this. No, God's already done this. Now your proper response is to love and obey the God who saved you, the God who has been so good and kind and merciful to you. So then it creates a cascading event. I like to think in equations, so forgive me, but I kind of do like a this equals this plus this for words in my brain. And this cascading event is God loved them first, and then they obey God and love him. Then that equals God blessing them. And they take that blessing, as he's talked about before. He doesn't want the abundance to turn them towards idolatry, to make them think that they did this themselves. So if they take that blessing and turn around and love God and worship God with what he's blessed them with, then he's going to bless them even more. It creates a cascading event. God loved them. They respond in kind with worship and obedience. God blesses them. God blesses them. They respond in kind with worship and obedience. God blesses them still. And it creates this waterfall of blessing on blessing on blessing, which would be amazing if the Israelites ever got that far. But they did not. Because covenant violations are heavily discouraged. They, uh, the Israelites receive their, their due penalty for disobedience to the law of God. What we see with these two mountains, with Mount Nabal and Mount Gerizim, the blessing and the curse, is there is no neutrality with God. We either love God and wholeheartedly follow him and obey him, 
or you don't, and you've chosen not to. You've chosen the other end of the spectrum, and you receive due penalty. There are no transactional relationships with God. And we don't operate this way. See, we don't, we don't reward people for doing what they're supposed to do. If an employee comes in and says, man, I've, I've shown up to work on time every day this week, we don't go, awesome, gold star. We go, what were you doing the weeks before that? If my kid comes to me and says, dad, aren't you so proud of me? I've brushed my teeth. I would say, no, that's what you're supposed to do. Now go, go clean your room. <laughs> we don't reward people for doing the bare minimum, for doing what they're supposed to do. However, God is generous. They love and obey God like they're supposed to, and God rewards them and blesses them. So what they're doing here, we're going to turn to Deuteronomy 27, or Deuteronomy, sorry, 11 will be in that one. But in Deuteronomy 27, if you're interested and want to go through that this week, they walk through all the stuff that's about, that happens in Joshua 8, 30 through 35. It's a step-by-step prescription of how to, how to do this. When you get to that mountain, it tells them how to set up the altars with no cut stones, have sacrifices, eat and rejoice. It tells them that they're to write the law on the stones. You're like, well, they can't cut the stones. How are they going like, to chisel it in? They didn't. It tells them in Deuteronomy 27, you, you put plaster over the stone and then you write on top of the plaster, which sounds a little weird to us until you go, lo- go looking for it in history and it's there. Other cultures have done this exact same thing. We've got uh, relics of that in museums. Even a story about Balaam, the guy with the donkey, that in Numbers shows up on one of those rocks with plaster on it and been writing on from like 800 B.C. So then the call and response is also listed out in Deuteronomy 27, but Deuteronomy 11 is the first place where you see Mount Nabal, Mount Gerizim introduced. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through a few verses and call them out. Keep up with me if you can. Remember to listen to me with an open Bible, not an open mind, and, and write them down for some homework. But Deuteronomy 11 Verse 1 says, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Deuteronomy eleven thirteen, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you the rain for your land in its season. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. This is, uh, this is figurative language, and this is where we get references from, like, uh, Revelation. They talk about the mark of the beast, and they talk about the mark that, that's put on God's chosen people as well, and it's between their eyes, it's up on their head, it's on their hand. Why? It's referencing this figurative language to say that how you live your life is going to showcase to the people around you where your allegiance lies. Does your allegiance lie with God? Does it lie with yourself? Does it lie with, uh, in Revelation, Babylon or empire? Does it lie in your, you know, uh, nationality? So this is figurative language. It actually turns into literal language after they come back from exile. They start putting little boxes up, up there with tiny copies of the law. I like to think of it as one of those little keychain Bibles, and they just, like, pocket it up there with some duct tape. I don't know. So in Deuteronomy eleven nineteen, it says, You shall teach them, talking about the law, to your children, talking to them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. It says, Teach your kids these things. Instruct your kids in the way of the Lord or in the New Testament. Go to uh, Ephesians 6, 4, and it says the same thing. Raise your kids according to the way of the Lord. Why is this here? This is here so that, that these people can continue to be blessed. If their kids don't know 
they're not going to choose Mount Gerizim. Our default is Mount, Mount Ebal to do things with, as are right in our own eyes. And God does not bless that under the Mosaic Covenant. So if you ever hear any Christians say, well, I don't want to force my religion on my kids. I'm just going to let them choose. You can, you can fold your Bible in half and swat them on the nose and tell them, no, you're wrong. You have abdicated your, your responsibility and abandoned your first mission field. Go back to Scripture. In Deuteronomy 11.26, the Lord says, See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. And this is something that that they're meant to do. There's a whole prescription in Deuteronomy 27. And we start thinking, well, can they do it? Like, can they actually choose Mount Gerizim instead of Mount Ebal? We, we know on this side of history what the answer is. And Joshua knew what the answer was. Uh, very quickly, I'm going to give a little spoiler. We're going to go to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua doesn't believe that they can do it and says as much. Joshua twenty four nineteen. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Joshua is repeating what he's heard Moses say. Moses was repeating what he heard God say. He knows. Like, look, I'm going to put this here for you. I'm going to create the ceremonial law, the moral law, the civil law, and you guys are going to fall time and time again, despite the fact that you have this there, despite you have all of these memorials and things to remind you, still not going to make it. And what we see if we look through history is that they chose Mount Ebal instead of Mount Gerizim. They chose the cursing over the blessing. How do we know that? Because we, we said Deuteronomy 27 is the prescription for this day and how it's going to play out. If you read a little bit further, you get into Deuteronomy 28, and that is the scariest chapter in the Bible. I found that as an as a adolescent, and it messed me up for a whole week. Deuteronomy 28 spends the first 14 verses talking about the blessing for obeying the law. 14 verses that sound just great. Like, I want some of that. That lush and green Mount Gerizim stuff. Give me that. And then it goes into 54 verses on the curses for disobedience, for choosing Mount Ebal over Mount Gerizim. And you go, I don't want any of that. I was a 12-year-old kid looking up in a dictionary trying to find out what afterbirth was and why anybody would have to eat that in a siege. This is one of those chapters, like, you don't read to your kid at night. It's, it's dark. It's messed up. But it gets fulfilled. In the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, if you hold up Deuteronomy 28 and the historical first-hand account of Josephus, they line up to include the cannibalism of babies lines up. If you hold up Jesus's, uh, not Sermon on the Mount, all of that discourse, if you hold up Jesus's all of that discourse on the other side, they line up because Jesus was warning them. He knew it was coming. The siege is coming. And he's like, you guys, get out. When you see these things, run. Don't, go, don't stop for your cloaks. Don't go back inside. Leave. 
Matthew and Mark call the abomination desolation. Luke specifies that when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, run, get out. And this is very important to Jesus, so much so that on the way to the cross, he stops to have a conversation about this. He's on his way to the cross, and Luke details it out. He's, he's got a cross. He's, he's got the finish line right there. He's just got to get on that hill and die, and it's done. But he stops, and he talks to the women of Jerusalem and says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for moms, because it's going to be really bad for moms. Deuteronomy 28 is real dark when it comes to moms and children, and it's coming, and it gets fulfilled in the siege of 70 A.D., so we see Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And from the uh, perspective of the Israelite, you see the blessing for the obedience that you just can't do. You, you, you try and you fall and you just can't. And you see Mount Ebal and it's your, it's your default. You see what you always end up doing and choosing disobedience over obedience, choosing what's right in your own eyes over what is right according to God's perfect law. And you see the curses as your due penalty. If you turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul summarizes this quite well. And he says, uh, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Following the law, doing good, doesn't justify you. You can feel like a good person all you want, it's not enough. It will never justify us. And the law exists to show us sin as a reflection of ourselves, how we know that we are sinful is by looking at the perfect law and going, I don't line up, I don't match up, I fall short every time. So when the Israelite looks at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, these symbols of blessing and curse, what they see is the unattainable. But on this side of the cross, as Christians, we look at Mount Gerizim, we look at Mount Ebal and we see something different. We see Christ. We see how it points us to Christ. Because Mount Gerizim, the blessing for perfect obedience to God's holy law, only one man has ever done it. Jesus Christ perfectly lived that out. Only one who's ever earned those blessings is him. And instead of taking what he had earned, instead of, instead of living in those blessings and being lush and green, he instead died for us, taking our curse on himself. We look down in the valley between those two mountains and we see Shechem, we see a tree, we see an altar, and we see Christ there too, who hung on a tree as a sacrifice to God, our altar. He condescended down that mountain, taking on flesh, becoming like us, dying in our place, so that we can then receive blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the, in the heavenly realm, according to Ephesians 1, not necessarily riches and fame and health and wealth here. Paul reminds us in a couple of verses, uh, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took the curse. 
for us. He redeemed us from the curse, Mount Ebal, and has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That's Mount Gerizim. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. He gave it to us. It's a free gift called grace. I'm going to turn to Romans 6. I'm going to stay there for the rest of our, our time this morning. In Romans 6.14, we see that it says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. We are redeemed from the curse of the law. It says, Now we are not under the law, but we are in Christ and under grace. To be in Christ, that's, that's covenant language, as Pastor Richie has informed us. It's to be in a covenant relationship with Jesus. And we are under grace. But now we come to an, uh, the dangerous ideology we talked about this morning, and that dangerous ideology is, a, is the word antinomianism. Antinomianism. It's a $3 word. Anti, we're familiar with, as a prefix for opposite of, without, or against. It's anti, whatever. And nomos is, is law. Anti-lawism. This is the belief that, that uh, Christians are free from the moral law by virtue of grace. Their anthem would be, free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. And do what they want. They're free from the law. We see this in the church in, when a, a homosexual or transgender person is elevated to the platform of a pastor. That would go directly against the word of God, but under grace they feel free to do what they want to do. It's also known as autonomianism, the sister of antinomianism. They are a law unto themselves. They make up the law how they see fit or change it how they see fit. We also see this antinomianism in our own mindsets. When we ever have the thought, God will forgive me. I can do this thing this once, and God will forgive me. I'll, I'll pray, I'll repent afterwards. This thing that'll make me feel better, this thing that'll make me more comfortable in whatever situation I am. I could lie here. I could lust a little here. God will forgive me. This mindset is antinomian. This mindset is is saying, well, I, grace is going to come anyway. It's going to cover that up. I'm good. Have you ever thought this way? Have you ever excused your own sin with grace on the other side? By justifying our love of sin with God's graciousness, we imply that God condones sin. By saying that he's going to forgive it anyway, I, I can do what I want to do now, what makes me comfortable now because he's going to give me grace on the other side of that. That is implying that God condones sin and that is blasphemy. It is, it is abhorrent to the Christian. Just thinking that we are lawless is dangerous and it's taught in our churches. Anytime you hear a pastor talk about unhitching us from the Old Testament, he is wrong and he is in a dangerous error. This kind of thinking completely separates the Christian from the moral law. There are three kinds of law. There's the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was fulfilled by Jesus, took care of all of that. The civil law applied to running the nation of Israel. We're not Israel. So that leaves the moral law, and that's still on us. 
we can readily see this, this moral law in the Ten Commandments. We can see it in how Paul upholds the Ten Commandments in his writing. He upholds the morality of the Old Testament for the New Testament believer, for this new covenant that we are in. The moral law still applies. So how do we equip the body to stand against this dangerous ideology of antinomianism? How do we equip ourselves against ourselves and against this same thinking in others who would look at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and say, well, I'm not under that law. Okay, but we are not without law. How do we equip ourselves? We equip ourselves with the word. All day, every day, only the word. Not seminars, not conferences, not three-day workshops, just the word. That's it. And sometimes I can get up here and I can, I can get passionate and it can sound like I'm beating the sheep and I, I, I'm not here to beat sheep, I'm here to hand out sticks so you can fend off wolves. So this morning we're going to equip ourselves recognizing that we are not under the law but under grace. But we're going to equip ourselves with the word. Quickly, we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians 9 and then we'll come back to Romans 6. 1 Corinthians 9.21 says, To those outside the law, I, Paul, became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. We are freed from condemnation under the law, but we are not without law. We are not without parameters or boundaries governing our lives. So in Romans 6, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are dead, dead to sin because we were baptized into Jesus who died for us, died to sin, died to defeat sin. And we now walk in a resurrection life, in new life, a new creation, as it will say elsewhere. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. Bethel can sing all they want about being slaves to fear. The Bible doesn't care so much about that. They care that we are not slaves to sin because sin is the issue. For one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. No, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We cannot have the mindset that we can, what is grace on the other side of this? I can do what I want now and God will forgive me. No, we must consider ourselves dead to sin. I can't do that. I can't go back to that. I'm dead to it. And I'm alive to God. Sometimes we'll isolate 
uh, Romans 6.11 in that alive to God piece, but it really, it needs the support of Romans 6.10 to understand what it means to be alive to God. We understand that Jesus, in verse 10, the life he lives, he lives to God. The life we live now, we live to God, for God, for his glory, not for ourselves. We don't live this to ourselves and choose what we want according to what's right in our eyes. No, we live it to God because we are alive to God. Continuing in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. By no means can we have this mindset that on the other side is grace. On the other side, God will forgive me anyway. By no means. Hebrews chapter 10 will tell us that that's trampling on grace. Some of you might be wondering if I'm going to read the whole chapter, and yes, I will, because it's God's word that equips us, and we cannot be, we cannot shy away from a little more reading, because this is our source anyway. This is what we need. You don't need my opinions. We need the word, and and the beautiful thing about the way Paul wrote Romans 6 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is it almost needs no commentary. It is very plain about our state in righteousness, our state in death to sin. So let's continue. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? If we go back to that and say, God, I'll me on the other side, we're presenting ourselves as slaves to it. We might console ourselves and say, it's just this once. no. You're presenting yourself as a slave to it. Don't go back. But thanks be to God, in verse 17, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. It's a cascading event. Righteousness leading to sanctification, which leads to more righteousness, which leads to more sanctification. Sanctification being set apart, made, made holy and cleansed for the purposes of God. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What a stirring verse. What fruit did we get from that life we used to lead? What from how we used to live before Christ ever brought us peace or joy or fulfillment or made us feel clean? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, 
the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are not under the Mosaic Covenant, so this is not a matter of us choosing Gerizim or choosing the ball. We're free from the law, but we are not without law. We choose to obey and love God because that is the appropriate response when he has initiated our redemption, when he has rescued us from our slavery to sin. The only right and proper response is loving, faithful obedience to him by the way he's revealed himself in his word. That's it. We're already blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We don't do this to get blessing. We're already blessed. So if anybody teaches you or tells you that if you, if you do this, if you give this, you'll, God will bless that, they're, they're wrong. You're already blessed. But lovingly, faithfully obey anyway because it is your proper act of spiritual service. He'll go on to say something very similar to that in Romans 12. In fact, let's go there. It's not in my notes, but we're just doing this anyway. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We do that by the washing of the water of the word, as it says in Ephesians This is it. This is how we respond is this, this spiritual worship, this living sacrifice, this obedience, this love, this faithfulness back to God who's been so faithful and good and initiated that for us. When the Israelite looks at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, they see the law, live in the shadow of the unattainable, can never be good enough, can never follow the law well enough to earn those blessings, to be free from the curse that rests on Mount Ebal. We look to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal and what we see is we see Christ illuminated in the scriptures and what he accomplished for us that we could not do ourselves. We see our freedom purchased for us. Freedom from sin and freedom from condemnation under the law. When we face God in in judgment, we will not be condemned according to the law. We will be held as righteous according to what Jesus accomplished. And when we look at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, we see the blessing of his lavish grace on us and the reason we love and obey him. Let's pray. Father, we are beyond grateful. Jesus, we're, we're grateful for what you accomplished for us that we couldn't do ourselves. Your perfect life, your substitutionary sacrifice, your resurrection the new life that you've given us, the the ability that you give us to to repent and and believe in you. And by that we're saved. May we, as we leave this place, celebrate your goodness, your redemptive hand. May we, we celebrate through our obedience and through our love our love to you and and our obedience to to love one another and to follow your word. May we not take your grace for granted. May we not trample on the shed blood of Christ, but may we instead be emboldened by it, spurned on by it to, to love 
more, to love you more, to love others more, and to do it more faithfully. I pray, Lord, that your word has, has equipped everyone who's heard it this morning so that we can stand firm as your word tells us to do. May we be equipped laborers in the field for you because we love you. We honor you in, in all of this, Lord. We, we cherish and we treasure you above all other things. In Jesus' name, amen.